From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today we'll hear from John McEnroe, one of the most talented and volatile tennis players ever. He'll talk about his career, his outbursts at umpires, and his new careers as a TV tennis analyst and narrator of the hit Netflix series Never Have I Ever. McEnroe is the subject of a new Showtime documentary. Also, songwriter, singer, and musician Amanda Shires will perform a few songs and talk about her life. Her latest album, Take It Like a Man, has songs related to a rocky period in her marriage to singer-songwriter Jason Isbell. Now we just walk through the door, turn out the light, and go to bed. Can't remember who we were before. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Dave Davies has our first interview. Here's Dave to introduce it. Our guest today, John McEnroe, is remembered as one of the greatest tennis players ever and one of the loudest. He's won 155 combined titles, that's singles and doubles, more than any man in the game's modern era. And he's won 25 singles titles on the Champions Tour, the circuit for those who've retired from the mainstream tour. His playing days are also remembered for moments like this. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line. Shock flew up. It was clearly it. How can you possibly call that out? How many you can miss? That's John McEnroe arguing a line call at the 1981 Wimbledon tournament. McEnroe is the subject of a new documentary film directed by Barney Douglas that's now streaming on Showtime. It chronicles McEnroe's remarkable success at a young age and his marriages to Tatum O'Neill and Patti Smythe, all in the glare of intense media scrutiny. The film also explores his family relationships with his father and manager and with his own children. McEnroe is a regular analyst on TV coverage of major tennis tournaments, and he does voiceover work on the hit Netflix series Never Have I Ever. The Showtime documentary about his life is called McEnroe. John McEnroe, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I have to say, when I was preparing this introduction, I kind of cringed at the thought of playing that clip. I, am I really going to make John McEnroe listen to this for the 5,000th time? But that particular phrase, you know— um, you Cannot Be Serious, has kind of become part of your brand, hasn't it? Yeah, my first book was called that. Uh, on all the seniors' events, champions' events you mentioned that I played and won, uh, they would be disappointed if I didn't use that phrase at least once. So it's sort of laughable and sort of sad at the same time. Um, that Really, the only time I said that in my 15-year career was that clip you just uh, – played. Uh, so it's it's sort of crazy that that phrase that I said once in the first round in a Wimbledon in 1981 is still something that I hear every day. Partly it was so well mic'd, I guess. You know, I, I, I will, I think we have to note that you can look at the full clip on YouTube, the longer clip, and you can see that the ball actually was in, that you were right. And the announcers noted that <laughs> for what it's worth. Well, amazingly enough, actually, uh, uh, ESPN did a, a 40th anniversary piece for me, you know, about that clip. And at the end of it, Tom Gullickson, who was I was playing at the time, came out and <laughs> said, "Just for the record, I want everyone to know that that ball was in and on the line, and John was right." And I was like, well, "It took 40 years, but uh, better late than never." I appreciated it. I'm wondering about the natural talents that you brought to the game. You know, your game wasn't like 
muscling it, um, overpowering everyone. It was using a wide variety of shots and being really creative. Bjorn Borg says that you could do anything with the ball. And it's interesting, in, in the documentary we hear your wife, Patty Smythe, say that, that you're very visual, that you have a great eye for art. You say that you think strategically. You look at the court and see where a ball was go. I mean, your wife says at one point, wonders if maybe you were on the spectrum. I'm just wondering, is there something about the way your brain was wired that really fit this sport and your game? Uh, good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer, but uh, I think in some ways it was. But it was also Antonio Palafox, who was the, the Mexican player who played on the tour for many years, who taught me the way I played. And he looked at the, the, the sport as if it was sort of a geometry class. And it was all about putting me in advantageous positions and putting my opponent in difficult positions. And sort of that swirled in my head. It took me probably six, eight years to figure out what, what he was trying to teach me, but it clicked in. And then I realized, okay, this is something that I can take advantage of. I'm athletic enough to do what he taught me. And I think that that was this style of play that suited my personality. Because initially, when I was a kid, I couldn't do like the type of aggressive style of play and, you know, the serve volley and covering the net, that type of game that you don't see much anymore. But at the time was certainly something that was done a lot more often, but it took me a while to figure it out. Um, and he was the guy that sort of gave me the hands, uh, the, the feel of the ball, that that was more important. So you went to Wimbledon for the first time in 1977, and in the documentary, gosh, you look so young. <laughs> you, what, you missed your high school graduation yeah. to make the trip, right? Yes. And then you end up winning, you know, match after match, and you find yourself in the semifinals against Jimmy Connors. Um, what were your interactions like when you saw each other on the court or whenever you met? You know, I was in like sort of like the B locker room, which is where they put like the lesser ranked players or the qualifiers for until the quarterfinals. So I didn't have really any interaction at all with the top players. It was like unbelievable to be in this, you know, the presence of these guys, you know, these gods that I looked at, like Connors and Garolitis and Borg. So I, you know, I felt like it was who that, how the hell am I in this situation? I was the number one junior player in the world, but I didn't realize that gap between where I was at then and where the pros were at was as little as it as it was. You know, I thought, oh my God, either I'm a, a lot better than I thought or these guys aren't as good as I thought. And I think it was a combination of both. But as far as Connors, he blew me off completely. He wouldn't acknowledge my existence before, which was, you know, I tried to introduce myself. He just walked by me as if I didn't exist. So that was sort of, I was like, oh my God, there goes the first set. I was like so wound up. I'd never been on the center court of Wimbledon. I'm playing Jimmy Connors. He's trying to intimidate me already. And he did, he succeeded. You know, as your career developed, I mean, the, your outbursts on court became kind of part of your identity and the media focus of it. And I think we should just note that you know, there are other sports where yelling at the umpire is part of the game in baseball. I mean, there's nothing wrong with just chewing out an umpire. And, you know, you're, you'll get tossed out if it's for balls and strikes. But, you know, nobody's going to think differently of you for it. Tennis is different. Um, I'm wondering why you think, looking back on it, you lost your temper more than others on the court. Uh, first of all, I think that most of the players in the sport of tennis are remarkably well-behaved. 
you know, I would consider myself more of the average Joe type of guy that goes out there and, you know, it's such a frustrating game that I, I was amazed that people could keep their con- composure as well as they did. And one of the other, I mean, I, Connors, for example, I mean, I think he did worse things on the court than I did with all due respect to him. And, and Nastasi were two guys I, I kid, but it's true. I taught, they taught me a lot. Um, what, what do you mean when they say they did worse things? Well, there were certain antics that they did that were way beyond the pale in my book of what I was doing. You know, I'm not saying I'm some angel, but I'm saying, they, you know, they took it to, you know, uh, vul- vulgarity at times, uh, you know, uh, situations where there would be altercations, uh, you know, p- potentially, you know, and, and Nastasi was like uh, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, he would be on the court and you'd want to strangle the guy. And then right after the match, he'd say, he used to call me Macaroni. He'd go, Macaroni, where are we going to dinner? And, you know, it was over. You know, so they taught me in a way that it was like what, what's on the court stays on the court. Um, and so that was like a learning experience. But honestly, when I started uh, playing, to me, I just wanted to be treated the same way other athletes in other sports. You refer to baseball, obviously. There's a sport where that was sort of almost encouraged in a way. People loved that. Uh, when they, there was a spat between a player, the manager, and the umpire, why all of a sudden are they, you know, have microphones ten times as loud on the tennis court? You know, hearing every breath that I say, it just seemed unfair. I'm sure if you put a mic in the center of a, a football game, they weren't saying hello, how are you? <laughs> so, um, you know, we weren't protected in the way which bothered me. You know, I'm not saying that s- certain things they did were out of line. They were, and, and, and I was reprimanded, and I was, you know, fined, et cetera. Sometimes I deserved it, but I didn't feel like I had the backing that, that, I, we, that I needed. And I feel like the sport has suffered still because it's still considered sort of this, you know, it's too expensive, that upper class, you know, white man's game, you know, that... Um, hasn't had given the opportunity to enough people that, you know, can't afford to play the game. Well, you know, your dad was a huge influence on your life. Um, and I, I gather he had high expectations of you. I mean, did he have a habit of yelling at you? And do you think that maybe part of this is just, that's kind of the way you were used to people communicating? Yeah. You know, I used to kid around, half kiddingly. It was a loud dinner table. You know, um, he used to you know say, look, you don't need to, you know, yell at the umpire. You don't need to, you know, get involved in these altercations. Just go out and play. You're better than them. But he'd say it like, you don't need to get involved in these altercations. <laughs> you know, he didn't even realize he was saying it. You're better than them. Um, so it was, seemed only natural. I grew up in Queens. I, I commuted on the train and the subway to my high school. I was used to a lot of energy. I was very taken aback, actually, when I went to Wimbledon in London for the first time. At, you know, I was like, wow, they're so polite here. This is incredible. There's, they just act so differently. Um, and I'm sure they felt the same way about me. So to me, it was sort of normal. I was actually sort of taken aback that people were sort of bent out of shape, shall, shall we say. Uh, it, it really surprised me. And so it got really frustrating. I got more and more defensive and then rebellious, I guess, you know, uh, and, and, and it just kept blowing up. Do you think it helped your game or hurt it or neither? Uh, I think at times it helped it. Uh, I, I think that uh, certainly early on, even though I would much prefer the crowd being all behind me, and I did usually have a good 
portion of the crowd behind me, but uh, I'd focus on the people that weren't behind me. And, and, and for a while, I think that fueled me, you know, I'll show them type of thing. Um, and I think that sometimes if I was sort of not, you know, that intensity that you need, that Connor's like effort, it would wake me up a little bit if I got it going. Um, I think after I had children, which was, um, you know, I was 27 when my uh, Kevin was born. I think that I started to look and view that differently. It just seemed like uh, I was sort of like, a, I don't know, a cigarette smoker who couldn't quit. Um, and it just felt like it was then becoming a negative and I wasn't learning from it. I mean, I think the key to, you know, when you're not winning and, uh, is to learn from the losses. And you, if you're able to take something out of what ha just happened and turn it into a positive and, Towards the end, I think that um, uh, it was hurting me. We're listening to the interview Dave Davies recorded with John McEnroe. McEnroe's career and personal life are examined in a new documentary, which is streaming on Showtime, called McEnroe. We'll hear more of the interview after a break, and we'll hear my interview with singer-songwriter and musician Amanda Shires. Her latest album, Take It Like a Man, has songs related to a rocky period in her marriage to singer-songwriter Jason Isbell. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teledoc.com slash fresh air. Let's get back to Dave Davies' interview with tennis great John McEnroe. His career and personal life are the subject of a new documentary that's now streaming on Showtime. It's called McEnroe. Your matches with uh, Bjorn Borg were such epic confrontations. I think I remember these more than any tennis I've ever watched. And it's interesting that you're on-court personas just couldn't have been more different. I mean, you were emotional, you know, sometimes overheated. He seemed to show almost no emotion. Did that bother you on, on court? Uh, it didn't bother me. I was ab absolutely amazed that he could be as disciplined and show nothing. Uh, I, I couldn't understand how that was even possible, truthfully. Um, I knew him off the court, and he wasn't like that off the court. Um, you know, he, our personalities are more similar than people realize. But like, he was this god when I came up. He's two and a half years older than me. And I remember seeing him at Wimbledon when I was a kid in one of his first Wimbledons and all these girls streaming on the court and screaming. It looked like Beatlemania, you know, the closest thing that tennis had ever had to Beatlemania. And I thought, now I want to be a professional tennis player. I was probably 14 or 15. Uh, I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. You know, some elite athletes, when they are past their prime, when they feel they, they can't compete at the very highest level, just walk away. I mean, they just, I mean, some like, they won't even pick up a club or a bat uh, or, a, or a racket. I mean, you know, Bjorg, Bjorg might fit that description. You've kept playing on the Champions Tour and, and you've been a winner. How did you cope with, with, you know, not being able to do what you used to do when you were at the very highest level? Well, honestly, I hated it. Uh, um, there's a phrase, this great basketball player back in the 70s used to say, Connie Hawkins, he said, the older I get, the better I used to be. 
Um, and, and that was just unfortunately true with me. And that probably started in my mid to late 20s. So that was extremely hard to sort of have to face up to the fact that like for all the effort that I'd made to try to get my act back together and do things to get me back to the top, I wasn't getting there. You know, I took time off when um, my first son was born. I probably took about six months off, which is not really, Nadal took six months off because of an injury and won the Australian. So this wasn't, you know, it was more unheard of then. You were supposed to keep playing and playing. Um, and um, it got to a stage where um, I had to accept the fact that I'd sort of dropped a notch. And that was extremely difficult as well. But I, I thought, look, I, I sort of considered the situation I was in. And I tried to, it wasn't easy at times, but look at the glass half full. And realize this, even though I dropped from one or two in the world to six, ten in the world, that I was, you know, it was still an incredible way to make a living. It was a great job for the most part. I am proud to say that I was given the opportunity to try to do some different things um, that I wasn't always as successful at as I would have liked to have been. But it was good to get out of my comfort zone as well and try different things, uh, whether it was, you know, I did a game show, I did a talk show. Those are things that um, sort of test yourself to see what, you know, how much you like it and how, how good you're at it. And, you know, see ultimately that you do, for me at least, belong in the sport of tennis to try to bring it to another level, hopefully, in, in any way I can. And I think that's going to be what I'm going to be trying to do as long as I'm around. Well, you know, you've done some commercials and you've had cameo appearances in some TV shows, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm and 30 Rock. But now you have this regular voiceover role in this Netflix series, Never Have I Ever. It's a hit series. It's uh, created by Mindy Kaling. It's about an Indian-American high school student, you know, working her way through, you know, romantic dramas and family issues. And I thought we would listen to a clip here of you. This is from the opening of the third season of this series. And the main character, this girl, Davy, has landed the hottest guy in her class as a boyfriend at the end of the previous season through all kinds of crazy stuff. And series opens. She's walking into school holding his hand, and all the kids are stunned. And as they walk through, we hear your voice narrating the scene. Someone check on hell, because it is definitely frozen over. Devi Vishrakumar just walked into school for the first time as Paxton Hall Yoshida's girlfriend. And all she had to do was cheat on him, hit him with the car, and do all his homework. Harry and Megan move over. This is what fairy tales are made of. What the hell? They've been together for two whole weeks which for teenagers is basically a lifetime of monogamy. <laughs> That's John McEnroe in the, <laughs> in the series Never Have I Ever Created by Mindy Kaling. Um, you know, this, a lot of your stuff is really funny here. Um, how, did, how did this happen? How did it come about? Well, first of all, I can't take credit for the writing. Mindy and her, her right-hand woman, Lang Fisher, are great, and they've been doing that. They've been together for years. Uh, how it came together, I was at a Vanity Fair Oscar party. I was walking in to take a photograph with Patty. And as I was walking in, Mindy was walking out. And I, honestly, I wasn't even sure who it was. But Patty was like, oh, that's, hey, John, you got to meet Mindy Kaling. And then she looked at me and she's like, oh, my God, I have this idea for a show where you're going to be uh, the narrator. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. You know, 
checks in the mail type of thing, because you hear that type of thing fairly often, and most of the time, if not all, it doesn't happen. As it turned out, her father, who was in India, was a big fan of mine. So somehow she came up with this idea that I should be the alter ego or psychologist or uncle or advisor to a, you know, in essence, what I believe is her story uh, to a degree. She's a first uh, generation immigrant from India. Her parents came and sort of tell her story and then have me be the guy that's sort of looking through her as a kid. Maybe she heard my name too much from her father. Uh, perhaps, so that she was like, oh, the hell with it. I'll get him to do the narration. And at first, people were like, oh, this will never work. This is crazy. And I remember seeing a review or two a couple years ago, and they are like, this is crazy, but maybe it could work. And then it was sort of like, it did work. So it was sort of gratifying that sort of, you know, there's people that come up to me now. I mean, the show is big, bigger outside the U.S., actually, than it is inside. So you, I hear more and more about this, and it's sort of, Ironic that I'm involved in a show about a high school, you know, Indian American girl trying to come to grips with, uh, you know, growing up in, in a difficult situation. Although I think a lot of people can relate to the difficulties of trying to have friendships and, you know, not feeling overwhelmed in high school. Well, John McEnroe, thank you so much for spending some time with us. You got it. Thanks a lot. Take care. John McEnroe's career and personal life are the subjects of a new documentary streaming on Showtime called McEnroe. He spoke with Fresh Air's Dave Davies. Our next guest is Amanda Shires, a singer, songwriter, and fiddle player. She performs in several settings and has received awards in each of them. In 2017, for her solo work, she was named Emerging Artist of the Year at the Americana Music and Honors Awards Ceremony. The next year, she won a Grammy for Best Americana Album as part of her husband's group, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit. Shires plays fiddle in the band. She co-founded the country's supergroup, The High Women, which includes Brandi Carlisle, Maren Morris, and Natalie Hemby. In 2020, The High Women won Album of the Year at the Americana Music Honors and Awards Ceremony. Shira started playing fiddle professionally when she was 15 with the band The Texas Playboys, which used to be led by Bob Wills, the father of Western Swing. Shira's new album, Take It Like a Man, includes several songs she wrote that came out of a difficult period in her marriage to Jason Isbell. I recorded my interview with her last week. She was in her home recording studio with her fiddle and with guitarist Zach Setchfield, and they played a few songs. You know, you've said that a lot of the songs on this album come from a troubled period of your marriage to songwriter and singer Jason Isbell, who you perform with um, and who plays on this album. <laughs> mm-hmm. Many songwriters would say, oh, they're not about me. They're just songs because mm-hmm. uh, everybody goes through troubles in their relationship. These really aren't personal. Um, so since they are personal songs, you had to decide to say that. How did you decide to say that these songs are really about a bad period of your marriage? When I write songs, I go into it either with an idea to explore something, um, make sense of the world or my feelings, you know, all that. But um, this part of of my life and our marriage was difficult, and it, it took me back to the reason I came to writing and doing music in the first place, which is expression and trying to do something 
for me that could make me make sense, I guess. So when I would write the songs, I don't know it was going to come out, but sometimes it was so, I was just so down that the only way I could get better was to take it out on, on writing a song. And when I would write these songs, it was never in my mind, oh, I have to record them because that's not how I go into songwriting. And then it was never like, oh, they have to be on a record once I do record them. Um, then I get to the end of the recording process and try to decide what makes the best collection of songs. And um, I had about seven different album sequences going on. And I guess when we got to the third album sequence that I had, Jason was like, why, why isn't Fault Lines on there? And I said, I don't know. I just feel like that invites a lot of conversation and questions, you know, into our marriage and our relationship. And I don't know how I feel about that. And um, he said, well, you can always put it on there and just choose not to answer questions about it. And, you know, or you can, he, he was pushing for me to leave Fault Lines on there because it is a good song, as he said. But, um, yeah, after a while thinking about it, I got more comfortable with it, and, and here it sits. You know, your husband plays on this album, but the songs are about a bad period in your marriage. Um, when do you show him the songs? Like, do you say, hey, honey, here's a song I wrote about how bad things are between us right now. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how, how does that go? Or did you keep so, the songs, like, kind of secret for a while? So I thought if I could write a, a song with my feelings in it, that it might bring him around to to the um, the the walls that aren't really walls that we put ourselves behind sometimes. Um, and in this this certain period of time, there was a lot. And then coupled with the pandemic and all that, he was he was on self preservation mode, and I was too. But anyway, so I went and I sat down in my barn of internal wandering, and um, this is after some kind of nebulous argument, and I um, wrote fault lines, and then I texted it to him, just like you'd imagine. I said, I just wrote this song, and then in my mind I thought, well, if he couldn't hear the frequency of my voice before, maybe it, he could hear it through music, you know? And one day we wound up in the studio, and we cut the song, and after we recorded it, um, he said, that's a really good song. And I said, that's all you have to say. <laughs> that's all you have to say. <laughs> no more. <laughs> but um, through the process of making the record and, you know, all the things that go with that, the, the hours and the tedium, um, it got easier for us to have conversations, not because we were doing the work of, of addressing the problems, um, but because we were found common ground on a on something again, which has always been music and words. Can I ask how things are now? I mean, I think they're pretty good. He still can't seem to notice when the dishwasher's uh, unloaded and all the dishes are put away. He can leave a dish in the sink, you know. Other than that, I think we're all right. <laughs> good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, so let's hear a song about when things weren't so all right. And this is, <laughs> can I ask you to perform Fault Lines? Did you do an excerpt sure. of it? Yeah, I can do an excerpt. I'm going to play fiddle and I'm going to sing and Zach's going to play guitar.
You could keep the car in the house We both know that none of that was keeping Keeping me anyhow I cried, I asked, and I bawled Curled up in the floor with it all All the time the want, the overwhelming Volume of breathing You could say it's all my fault We just couldn't get along And so you know I'll say I don't know But no one's gonna be asking me Nothing left to fix You could say I lost my grip Say whatever feels better or whatever You could just say I'm crazy You could say it's all my fault We just couldn't get along And so you know I'll say I don't know But no one's gonna be asking me the character you wrote yourself out to be the flagship all part of my fooling Thank you for doing that. That's the song Fault Lines, performed by Amanda Shires with Zach Setchfield on guitar in Amanda's home studio outside of Nashville, Tennessee. That's one of the songs on her new album, Take It Like a Man. So let's talk about that song a little bit. It sounds like you were about to leave the marriage. Um, I don't know that, well... I don't know that I was going to leave or that Jason was going to leave. It didn't it felt like maybe we'd both leave at the same time. <laughs> but um I did move a couple of times out of the house. Um not because it was a leaving thing, but because I didn't want to do anything that would harm, you know, make it worse. I didn't want to do more damage. My guest is singer, songwriter and musician Amanda Shires. Her new album is called Take It Like a Man. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with Amanda Shires, a songwriter, singer, and musician. Her new album is called Take It Like a Man. She's also a founder of The High Women, a band also featuring country stars Brandi Carlisle, Maren Morris, and Natalie Hemby. Shires also performs with the 400 unit, the band led by her husband, songwriter and singer Jason Isbell. You grew up in Lubbock, Texas, and Mineral Wells, Texas, and you got your start professionally at age 15 playing fiddle with the Texas Playboys, and this is the iteration of the band um, of Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys, which got their start, and they were most famous in the uh, 30s and 40s and 50s, and um, 
Bob Wills is like the father of Western swing, which com- combined country music and jazz. So to give listeners a sense of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, listeners who don't know who they are, this is a classic 1940 recording of New San Antonio Rose. Deep within my heart lies a melody, a song of old San Antonio, where in dreams I live with the memory beneath the stars all alone. It was there I found beside the Alamo, enchantment strange as the blue up above, a moonlit path. Only she would know Still hears my broken song of love Moon and all your splendor So that was Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys from 1940. Their song, Newt San Antonio Rose, with Leon McAuliffe on steel guitar. Tommy Duncan was the singer. So, Amanda, you took fiddle lessons from Frankie McWhorter, who played with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys from 60 to 62, 62 was the year that Bob Wills had a heart attack and retired for a long time from from music. So when you started taking lessons with Frankie McWhorter and then became part of the band, how much did you know about Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys? I didn't know anything about them. I just fell in love with the music is what happened. I was learning orchestra and classical music in school and privately, and then my orchestra teacher recommended me to um, a private violin teacher, and I got awarded a scholarship to be able to go to those. And um, luckily, my teacher was one of those good and rare teachers that that um, notices when you know when a student needs a little more help. So I would be studying my pieces, and um, Lanny feel he would say, "You you're really really great at the parts you love, and the other parts are just kind of asleep." And I said, "Yeah, I I, I feel like." There's there's not a lot happening there emotionally for me, so I couldn't really get into it. And um, a couple of lessons like that, he he pulled out um, some fiddle tunes that he had been transcribing orally from Frankie McCorder. And um, he said, try playing this one. And I said, okay. And then I fell in love. It was love at first listen. And I was like, that's what I want to do because you play the song and then you also get to play, you get to improvise, which is when you go off the page, as they say, or you just play what you feel within the chords. And um, I was I was really into that. And uh, from there, he introduced me to Frankie McCorder and then my mom would drive me down there and I'd sit on his porch and he'd play songs and I'd learn them. Um. You have your fiddle with you. Can you play something that that you think kind of epitomizes the style that you learned and fell in love with? It could be something you played with the Texas Playboys when you're performing with them or something Mm -hmm. that you learned from one of your teachers, but that really made you fall in love with the style and that epitomizes what that style is. There's a song called Milk Cow Blues. It's a blues, you know, and then and and the words are amazing and, and always brought me a smile but um and and after you did the 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 main melody part you get to improvise and I really liked it and Milk Cow Blues goes like this
you. <laughs> Some of the words are funny. It goes, um, I woke up this morning and I looked out my door. I could tell my milk cow. I could tell by the way she loathes. If you've seen my milk cow, please drive her on home. Because I had no milk and butter, no, since my cow's been gone. Um, how did you end up actually playing in the Texas Playboys band? It was because Tommy Alsop was living in Snyder, Texas at that time, and um, he was running the Bob Wills Band. And um, Frankie and Lanny, my teachers, we were at Lanny's house the first time Tommy came over, and then I met him, and um, these guys are in their 70s and 80s, and it was very much like hanging out with lots of granddads. And um, sometimes Tommy would show me stuff on guitar, like a melody to play, and let's see see if I could memorize it or retain it or whatever. But um, one, one time, you know, not everybody could make a show, and um, Tommy said, if you can hold down that lower third harmony, and I'd, I'd love to, you know, have that spot filled. And I said, I'd love to. And for a lot of folks, that can be the most boring part of the three-part string ensemble thing. But for me, I was just happy to be up there playing music I loved. And um, so I got to do that basically because... I was willing to work in a group and play a, a part and do just that thing and show up on time and my stuff worked. And I followed the dress code. I had no problem taking direction, but and I had no problem helping when I needed to help. So so how seriously were you taken by the musicians in the band? Were you just like, like the cute kid who could play, um, but, you know, that audiences would go wild over because you were a girl in the band and there wasn't much of that. The audience really never went wild over me because um, it took me a minute to really learn how to improvise. And But I think for the, the players in the band, um, they took me seriously as a player, but they also understood that I was a kid. And I remember the first time I sang ever, Leon Rausch had to hold my hand. I was doing fine. And then I was just like, no sound would come out of my mouth. And um, <laughs> I like played the part. I got up to sing, and I was like, "Oh 